I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go of strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher, pastor and writer in Greeley, Colorado. And with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man, it is the case that one of our favorite people in the world is with us today. It's true. And that would be one Suzanne Stabile. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, guys. It's really good to be with you. Really good. Suzanne, when you introduce yourself, what do you normally say to people who aren't familiar with Enneagram or your work? How do you, how do you introduce yourself? I start always with the fact that I get to be married to the best human being I've ever met. I don't know anybody like him. We've been married for 34 years. I still wake up in the middle of the night and look at him and think, I don't know, I don't know why I would get to be with you. Like the universe has been really good to me. And then I say we have four children and nine grandchildren And then I say, uh, I'm a public teacher. And um, from that work, I've written a couple of books. And I teach people how to be more compassionate by teaching nine different ways of seeing. And oh, by the way, I was the first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX. (laughs) Yes, you were. (laughs) That's how I introduced myself. Did you get into The Last Dance? Did you watch The Last Dance? N- not yet, but I, Joey, our oldest, is an eight, and she got in touch with us and got me and said, "You have to watch number seven because I'm so sure he's an eight, and like he says yeah. what I would say and he does what I would do, and then <laughs> we could pull up every one of them except number seven, and she said we had to load download something else, blah blah. So not yet, but I will. Well, I think she's right too. Yeah, we. TJ and I, the last recording we did was with Sean Palmer, and we went through all 10 episodes of The Last Dance, typing <laughs> the the folks and talking about, which, which by the way, you're never supposed to do. But yeah, right. apparently if they're famous, then you can do a podcast about it. But we typed the, we really got into the character dynamics of the the stress, the the success, how these, these people at the height of uh, their craft are navigating the world. And... Uh, First basketball coach after Title IX. That's, that's fantastic. It was a very weird time. Um, you know, people were mad about, men were mad about Title IX. Uh, minor sports thought that money for women's programming was coming from their programming. Mm. So they uh-huh. were angry. Um, you had to, you know, I had to fight for time in the Coliseum and fight, 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 fight. Um, but... Um, my dream had been to coach college basketball, and I'd coached high school basketball, so I got to do it. And 
um, I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I don't, and, you know, that's it. Uh, how old were you when you started that job? Uh, 26. That's fantastic. So you're fight. I imagine the coaching is like 20% of your job. The, the other 80% is fighting those fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I had gone That's to school wonderful. there, so I kind of knew the lay of the land and I knew who the players were. That helps. And, um, you know, I'm a two. <laughs> so yeah. I figured out how to get what I wanted. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Both TJ and I wanted to tell quick stories. Um, how, TJ, how did you come to Suzanne's work? Well, um, really, I've been a student of personality my whole life. For the whole year and a half that I was in college, I wanted to be a psychologist and um, deeply fascinated by, by personality and personality theories. And um, I love looking into things like Myers-Briggs and, and the Big Five and, and all of those things, but nothing really ever set. Like nothing ever, ever really fit for me. Um, because there's always there's always things that that kind of go wrong to derail the system and and then uh, come across this wonderful woman teaching about another system uh, named Suzanne Stabile and uh, started describing things for me that made a lot of sense and then we did the whole personality test thing for one of my jobs and and it it typed me as a one but the more I read about it the more I figured out that I was a nine and all of a sudden here was a system that 100% made sense to me mm-hmm. and every time I learned something new about it it makes more sense and so um through my own interest, just studying you have been one of the, listening to you teach has been one of the most helpful things for me to wrap my head around what the system is and, and learn more things about that myself and learn more things about the other people who have gotten into this. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the basics of me getting into the wonderful, wonderful world of Suzanne Stabile. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, thank you. My story... I'm a little bit more shy about. I've never told this story on our podcast, and it involves a mystical experience. I had one of the few mystical experiences in my life uh, around your work. Um, I uh, sold two books to a large Christian publisher uh, 12 or so years ago. Um, they published the first one, handed me the second one back because it wasn't good. It, it, uh, their, their politics had changed, and... It just so happened that another very famous author at the time uh, published a book on the same topic and with, right when mine was supposed to be coming out. And so I just kind of lost that, that whole uh, manuscript. And it was dedicated to my wife, and it was set to release on our anniversary, and I was kind of heartbroken, and I went back to doing church work and university work. I teach philosophy. And around that time, our church really began to struggle. Um, we had some of the other folks who were working with us at the time moved on. And I have two young kids, and I'm really trying to just feel successful. And I got the bug to write again in around 2014. And while this is, well, a lot of things were just falling apart. And but I wanted to write something about the church and a church like ours. Ours is kind of a smaller church, but it's for more progressive-minded folks. And we're trying to fill in that space. And I contact a buddy of mine who I'd listened to forever, whose name is Luke. And I got a, uh, him to do an interview with me and 
a sociologist that I work with who specializes in sociology or religion. And, and Luke interviewed us, and, um, and I was so excited about this. And after the recording came out, I listened to it, and it was a- I was absolutely flat. Luke and my friend Josh were outstanding, both amazing. And I'm listening to this podcast thinking about how terrible I sound on this podcast. And I listened to it over and over and over again. And on the fourth time through or so, I am emotionally wrecked. And I realized after kind of having a dream for about 10 years, publishing and doing stuff that really brings value to others, um, that I didn't have what it takes. And this was the day that actually a dream of mine died. And as I'm internalizing this, the podcast rolled over to the next episode. And I remember not having enough energy at that moment to stop the podcast. And at this moment, I had a mystical experience. My dad's family is from Southern Oklahoma. His mom's name was Jane Cook. She had died 15 years earlier. Jane was the second of 10 kids. Mom and dad died when she was two, raised by her sisters. Um, Jane and I shared something. We shared a faith together. And the last thing she said to me, college student Jeff, was how proud she was of me and my trajectory. And then she died suddenly. And um, our church celebrates All Saints Day every single year. And until recently, she was the one person I would remember Uh, the righteous dead cheering me on, pushing me forward. And when the podcast flipped to Luke's interview, there she was, and I could hear her voice. And she, I imagine, was an Enneagram too, and she had this strong Southern uh, Oklahoma draw. Um, And invited Luke into her house, and when you first came into my home, you'll notice that I showed you pictures of the people on the walls because I wanted you to know these people cared about me, was a line, I recall, and and then the voice talked about how Luke saw the world, and there were, num- you know, there were numbers that were thrown around, and then Luke pivoted because he didn't want to talk about his feelings, and he started talking about his wife and and how self-criticism works in her life, and then you began speaking about Enneagram Ones, and I heard the voice of my grandmother telling me who I was. And she spoke over me these words of identity in that place where I was struggling so hard. And everything that got exposed there meant the world to me. And I all of a sudden had this foundation, I had a new tool, I had something that I had needed for for years. And, and actually, this, this wasn't the finish line for me. The next couple of years were really, were really bad for me. Lost parents, uh, lost friends, or my, I lost jobs. But uh, when the story of my life ends up getting written in my own heart, that was, that was a pivotal place for me. And just because of your faithfulness, you've stepped into a spot. I know for countless hundreds of thousands of people, or thousands of people, um, well, who knows? I mean, you sell a lot of books, so it probably is in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and I just, just one person, uh, mine's a long story, but, but I'm really grateful for your faithfulness, for your family's faithfulness. And, uh, and yeah, that's my story. Uh, <clears throat> those are the kind of stories that uh, brought Joe Stabile and me together. And that's the place in the world where everything comes together for me. 
things that I can't explain, uh, things that I know are true, even if I don't know the players, things that I know are meant to be for me at that time. So I, I, um, I'm grateful that I was a voice that was used in a meaningful way because so often I worry that I'm teaching salesmen how to make a better sale without knowing it and that I'm teaching uh, people how to get ahead of other people without knowing it. And um, thank you for uh, the vulnerability of that. And that that's kind of where all the important things in my life happened, in that space. Whatever that mm-hmm. space is, that's where all my stuff happened. And sometimes it's uh, it's very spiritual and sometimes it's very secular. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a teacher who wrote two books. I'm not a writer. And I'm a teacher who's trying to write a third one and I'd way rather teach. And I got the go-ahead from God, my understanding of God, to uh, work on the road back to you in a fortune cookie at P.F. Chang's. So, <laughs> literally, I, I've prayed about it till I, I don't believe in prayer anymore, and I've talked to Joe about it until he suggested that I, I go talk to our therapist about it. And, I, like, I've just <laughs> talked and talked and talked and blah, blah, blah. And we're at P.F. Chang's, and I said to Joe, I just don't know what to do. And he said, I think you just need to quit worrying about it. And I opened my fortune cookie, and it said, you are a lover of books. You should write a book someday. (laughs) (laughs) And I handed it to Joe, and he said, please tell me that we don't have to talk about this anymore. (laughs) 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 So, so It was uh, a plant. uh, It was a plant. (laughs) uh, All to say... I did check fortune cookies on the way out of the restaurant to make sure everybody didn't get the same one, by the way. (laughs) All to say, I... My understanding of who God is is so broad and so wide that to get... To hear that I got to be used in one of the stories is just... Like, I'm I'm so good for the rest of the... Pandemic. I'm just going to tell myself that story over and over till y'all put this podcast out, and then I'm going to listen to it over and over. Thank you. Please do. Uh, the thanks is uh, entirely on my side. So, um, speaking of pandemics, and speaking of the world going crazy, the Enneagram is symbolized by nine numbers in a circle, and we pick a topic and we go around the circle, and today we're going to talk about stress. And since... Apparently, the world is just getting worse every week. Timing. (laughs) By the time this comes out, we're going to be well ahead of the curve on addressing where people are at. But we're going to talk about the the moves in the Enneagram to stress, whether stress is an unhealthy state or if this is a place that we can actually find stability. And so that's where we're going. Uh, TJ, am I missing anything? I don't think so. I say let's just jump into it. Boom. Um, Suzanne... How would you describe the basics of arrows? We have talked about arrows in the past, but how would you describe the basics of arrows and the move into our stress number? Um, I think originally, uh, of course, of course originally, the lines on the Enneagram didn't have any arrows. Um, they, 
they just were lines on an Enneagram. And, you know, I've had a lot of difficulty uh, in the South here because evidently the Enneagram looks a lot like a pentagram to some people. (laughs) So it's like... We've heard that criticism. Oh, my gosh. So um, as I began to learn so, so long ago, 30 years now, um, I, I worked with what those two numbers represented that they would be connected by some line on this symbol, and then I saw one with arrows. So I did work before I saw one with arrows Mm. and tried to figure out how those numbers were connected. And I, I would start by saying that the difference in the Enneagram and some of the things... TJ, that you talked about in some of the tests, they all offered us something, right? Every indicator offered something. But the the differences are two. One is that the Enneagram is not static, and others are. And the other is that the Enneagram shows you who you are and where you missed the mark, and at the very same time shows you how to do it better. Mm -hmm. And that's the magic for me. It's like, okay... That is who I am, and that is what I do over and over and over that I don't like. So what do you want me to do about it? And then the Enneagram tells you right. what to do about it. And <clears throat> another thing I would say to kind of lay the foundation for our discussion is that I happen to believe that everything about Enneagram wisdom, when it's taught as intended, is helpful. So if you hear something about the Enneagram that's not helpful, then I came to believe that must be a mistake Hmm. or just something that hasn't been fully explored yet, right? And I learned from all the people who went before me, and I'm grateful and um, thankful for everything they taught me. And I was very hesitant to step out of what was already that body of wisdom and say something different. Like, it's like, who are you? Who do you think you are? The first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX was my answer. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I just kept looking at those arrows and thinking about stress and security, our true consolation and false consolation, our integration and disintegration, And I decided, hmm, I I love Richard Rohr. He's a dear friend. I'm so thankful for everything he taught me. And this true (laughs) consolation, false consolation, this doesn't work for me. Yep. Like, I, I, Suzanne, I think you're moving to false consolation. It's like, okay. (laughs) That's kind of woo-woo for me, right? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, integration and disintegration didn't really work for me. So I decided I'm, I'm going with stress and security. I know what those things mean. And so I now know that the arrows, as they are published by most people, suggest that if you go with the arrow, that shows you the number that you go to in stress. And if you go against the arrow, that shows you the number that you go to in security. But as you look through any Ram books, you'll find that not everybody 
has the arrows in the same place. Mm -hmm. So that's problematic at times. So um, I, I couldn't see how going from the bottom of two to the bottom of eight was helpful. That didn't make my life better. It certainly didn't make the lives of anybody around me better. Mm. And I, I could kind of see a whole array of possibility for me going to four in security. Like sometimes it meant I was creative and sometimes it meant I was self-indulgent. Yep. So um, I came up after some time uh, and decided to say that I think there is further teaching uh, beyond what we had. And the further teaching is that if you learn the Enneagram well, you have access to healthy, average, unhealthy, excess number in your stress number, and the same in your security number. And you need to know those three numbers well enough to know what kind of moves you want to make when you're losing control. Yep. So my overall statement is that I, I don't think you can take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. And I don't think you can experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security. It's beautiful. Suzanne, I'm, I'm just curious for, uh, for my own sake, like, uh, did you come to that, would you say it was more decided based on actual study? Like, like sitting down, academic, doing the work, getting, getting to this realization through study? Or did you, was that deciding this, was that more informed by your own personal experience? Like you mentioned going, like as a two, going to eight, um, going to the low side of eight isn't helpful. As a two, going to four, sometimes it brings good things, sometimes it brings less good things into your life. Was that more of the impetus for you sort of figuring this out, or was that, was it really just sitting down and, and doing the work of, of studying this material? Well, uh, when I learned the Enneagram, uh, Joe and I, Joe is a former Vincentian priest, and uh, he left the priesthood at 40, and we married, and <clears throat> he adopted my three children. We had a fourth. And uh, he went to seminary at 14. Um, and the Vincentian fathers have a similar system to the Franciscans. And when Joe left the priesthood, uh, it wasn't well received in his religious community. Hmm. And he had a lot of questions. And so uh, we had read Richard Rohr. And now this is, uh, I don't know, 1997, six, five, maybe, somewhere in there. So Joe just called Richard Rohr one day and said, this is who I am. Can we come see you? And he said, sure. <laughs> like you do. So we went to Albuquerque and... Um, spent a day, and he gave me an Enneagram book to read, and we agreed that he would meet with us quarterly uh, to kind of help us. Joe had had a spiritual director. He was 40, and he had had a spiritual director since he was 14. So you know you can't just go to the phone book and find a spiritual director if that's your history mm -hmm. with spiritual practices and having a spiritual director, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he agreed to work with us four times a year, and I went back the next time and couldn't stop talking about the Enneagram. I just couldn't stop. And he said, you know, I, I kind of believe you get this intuitively. So I have a challenge for you. 
I think you should study it for five years before you talk about it. Well, you guys seem to have personalities well-suited for that, but I don't. I don't. Like, sure. I, yeah. I, when I find stuff I like, I talk about it today. Mm-hmm. When so, I started studying this, I felt that challenge from you. Yeah. Like, I, I heard that and felt it. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. No, nope. she's stronger than I am. <laughs> well, you know, I was in love with Joe. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but... um <laughs> I, I don't think we need to go with what my motivation might have been. Uh, but um, I, I think that taught me how to discern what Enneagram wisdom to keep and what to allow to fall away. And then I think that also taught me how to look at the whole system and see if I had anything new to add to that. Like, is there original thinking from a heart triad person? Yep. You know, there aren't many heart triad folks who do what I do. Yep. So what does a heart triad person have to offer to this work that's been going on all this time? Mm. And uh, so that's a piece. So I studied a lot. But see, by the time, you know, nothing was published about the Enneagram until the Mm mid-1970s. So when I started reading about it, I could read everything as it came out. Mm. So I wasn't faced with what you guys are of let's go read all the Enneagram books. Like I just waited for somebody <laughs> to write another one, right? Yeah. Um, but so you also didn't have to sift through as many. True story. Yeah. True story. I could have helped you with that. You, you should have called me. <laughs> that I could have helped you with. But um, so um, I learned a lot through study to answer the question. But Joe and I uh, started Life in the Trinity Ministries in the Catholic Church, mm. and then we brought it with us out of the Catholic Church, the community of people. And then uh, we didn't know Joe was going to be a Methodist pastor. Uh, he at first thought he might be a butcher, but then he fixed a fried chicken dinner for us one night, and I said, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Anyway, um, he, a year after we married, uh, was invited into the United Methodist Church. It's a lovely story that's his to tell. But um, we had this community of people around us that I started teaching the Enneagram to when I started teaching. And I'm still teaching to that same community of people. So if you have an opportunity to teach the same 50, 60, 70 people over 25 years, then they teach you a great deal. Mm. if you listen mm-hmm. and if they feel like they have the room to disagree with you and to tell you what they think and all that and so part of it came from there and part of it came from a very stressful time in our life when I spent a great deal of time in eight and it wasn't helpful mm. wasn't helpful to the children it wasn't helpful to Joe and it wasn't helpful to me and so I thought, then, then, then I'm missing something. Hmm. And so I started aiming for the high side of eight when I was stressed. And I started learning to market and watch myself as I fell down as a two from healthy through average through unhealthy into excess yep. in my number. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was coming, right? Like that's the work I do in the recovery community. When you know your number and you watch this happening, when you get to excess in your number, you're in trouble. Mm. 
well, then why wouldn't I be in trouble, right, when I get to excess in my number? Mm -hmm. So I started looking for what eight had to offer me. And it offered me, when I did it correctly, the way to say no to people. Mm. You know, I couldn't say no to anybody without being a bitch. So um, I, I learned how to say, no, I don't think that's mine to do. Mm. Uh, and then not go back the next day and say, do you still love me and still want me? Which was, took a while to stop doing that. Um, I also learned in eight that... Um, I could overstep my boundaries in a loving and generous way like a two, or I could overstep my boundaries in an angry, demanding, threatening way like a unhealthy eight. Mm -hmm. Right? So then I started working with that. And then it just hit me that there's no reason why when you just follow an arrow that you wouldn't be following it to the full capacity of that number for behavior. Mm -hmm. whether it's secure or stress. One more little piece. Let me just add one more piece. And then I was invited to teach in the transplant hospital in the Baylor Hospital System here in Dallas. And in those days, they didn't have the directory as polished as it is now. And they had people who had to have an organ if they could find it anywhere in the country. And their complaint was, we do great working with one another until we hear that we have an organ coming for a transplant and then Ooh. we all treat one another in ways that are unexpected and unimagined. Mm. Why are we doing that? Because we don't like each other mm. and it's not working. And just coincidentally, I was invited to come in and teach the Enneagram and it answered those questions. Wow. Well, then I knew that there, there had to be a way for people to do better in mm. the stress move and there had to be and that it was very important for me to teach that you better prepare for movement on the Enneagram because you're not just going to sit in your one spot. Life doesn't offer you that. Right. Okay, that's all for now. That's an excellent word. Did you, do you have thoughts on that, Teach? No, that's a... Um, I love the idea of sort of organically coming to this huge truth, which I think that... Um, like reading through a lot of the older materials, I I, I think that it, it's clear that they missed this, you know, like that that so. this is so important about the stress and security moves, and and everyone up to a certain point taught it the same way, and and they missed it, and yeah. and knowing that you brought so much patience and and that organic move to figuring this out and, and opening this door for so much wisdom is beautiful. I love that. To build on that, this has been a door opener for us philosophically because the idea of high side and low side seems to me, and I don't want to sell the farm here because we're doing a, or trying to do more work on this, is that idea of high side, low side can be applied to motive. It can be applied to your coping style. It can be applied to nearly all of the roads, all of the, the, um, elements. What would you call those? The, um, attributes that the Enneagram wants to utilize in talking about you, how you solve problems can be done very badly or can be done very healthily out of your number and talking about the high side of your coping or your low side of your coping is a fantastic thing 
to explore. And there's, it seems to me that your work here blows open some significant doors uh, for, for us in the future. So I'm excited to see your work on that as well. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk to you, uh, Suzanne, about stress and stance. As I read through the road back to you, one of the things I saw, and I don't know if this is intentional, but um, you picture, you seem to picture commonly each of the types taking on the stance of their stress number. Um, eights withdraw to five. Nines are going to become reactive at six. And I was hoping that you could, I, I'm sure you have wisdom there. I was hoping that you could unpack um, your thinking on that. Um, <clears throat> you know, that was a tricky book. So, so here's what I was trying to do. I, I, I think, um, and, and it, has, it has proven to be true. I think people want to be seen and understood. And when they are exposed to good Enneagram wisdom, instantly they know they've been seen. Mm. So there is at least the possibility that they're going to be understood. If you take, in my probably less than humble estimation, if you take people on this journey too fast, they learn very little. Mm. Because the learning is in the journey not yep. in the information. Mm-hmm. Needs to be said a thousand times. Right. And so a statement that Richard Rohr started saying to me when I was still very young is, information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. And so <laughs> it seems that if you put too much and tell everything you know, then people don't get to discover the first 10 things you were trying to teach them. Mm. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so then this journey, which could be a lifetime, now, you know, I I, I get, I I literally have people who come up to me at events that say, I'm a 1W2 and my other wing is a (laughs) 6. Sure, sure, sure. And I say, okay, okay, is there anything else I can help you with? (laughs) (laughs) Like, but that's wanting more, that's wanting it all real fast. Mm -hmm. And not learning. So what I would like is if, if, if the world was being run my way, and it is not, I would want people to understand what they look like in their personality when they're healthy. And they won't be there much, but I'd like for them to know that they could go, oh, today's a good day. Mm. And when they're average, where they'll be most of the time. And what they look like when they're unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And for darn sure what they look like in excess because they're fixing to make mistakes that they can't take back mm-hmm. in excess in their number. Well, you can't learn that in an afternoon. Right. Yep. Right? Yep. After you learn that, then the next thing in my world would be you have to learn how to control your dominant center. So as a two on the Enneagram, if I can't control my feelings, then I'm not going to get far on this journey. Hmm. Not, it's not going to happen. And where my feelings show themselves the most are in my core number and in the number that I go to in stress and the hmm. number that I go to in security. Mm-hmm. So if it's you want to watch, watch for those extreme feelings everywhere, then let's talk about what you look like over here. And let's talk what you look like over here. And that's when I think it's appropriate to introduce stress and security. Yeah. 
And interestingly enough, for both of you, um, I, I think wings are very important because the most difficult number, the, the most difficult place on the Enneagram for people to figure out their number is between nine and one or one and nine. So that makes wings very important for you. And wings are the seat of your secondary desires and your secondary motivations. And I, I think a nine with an eight wing is a very important thing to understand. A three with a four wing is very important. But to think you know yourself because you can say I'm a three W four means that I'm grateful you had some interest in the Enneagram and it could have been this. Mm-hmm. Mm. It could have been so much more if you had the patience and you were willing to do your own work instead of have somebody else do it for you. Mm. Yep. Entirely right. When we get asked, I'm sure you have this as well. We're going to come speak. We're going to do a, com- we're going to do a conference. We're going to do a teaching with another church. Um, what tests ought we to take? Yep. And our common response is it's not that sort of thing. It's yeah. depthy and it's going to take all of yourself. So if you want us, we'd love to come in. But this is going to be a long, uh, this is a marathon. It's not a hundred meter dash. Yeah. Um, you know, early on when I first started teaching, Joe and I had these little kids and we had four kids to put through college and we, he was a pastor. We didn't have any money. And I was offered unending amounts of money to come teach a Know Your Number workshop in four hours. And I turned it down every time. Yep. Yep. You can't do it. You can't do it. So it's just, that was the choice I made. Yeah. Wisdom. Maybe. Well, let's jump into each. (laughs) Let's jump into each of the numbers on this front. Um, We're going to talk about moving to our stress number for each of the types. We're going to start with the eights. Um, Describing the eights move to the low side of five, you write, eights withdraw and become even less connected to their emotions. Some experience insomnia and neglect to care for themselves, eating poorly and not exercising. In this space, eights become secretive and hypervigilant about betrayal. They also dig their heels in and become even more uncompromising than usual. I'm going to set TJ up to, to reflect on these and then bring you in, Suzanne. Um, but what do you hear there, TJ? Well, the, uh, it's clear that this is a description about eights going to sort of the lower side of five in stress and, and picking up some of those unhealthy things. And there's, uh, I think you can see, like we'll see this with all of these descriptions, that there's a lot of ways that these stressful situations can sort of uh, cause us to double down on our unhealth a little bit. So the eight that's unhealthy is going to be sort of domineering. And as they withdraw, they'll actually close themselves off a little bit more to outside, outside expression and outside feelings. Like they'll, their feelings will be less exposed and they'll be less able to see the feelings of others as they move into those unhealthy spaces. Uh, And that's sort of the retreat of five. Yeah, the retreat is what's interesting to me here, Suzanne. What do you see in terms of that big thing? I'm going to withdraw because most of the times eights come across as so outgoing and they're pushing and they're they're in your face. And you have an eight child. I have an eight child. Um, I would love your thoughts on that. So here's the deal. Here's, Here's my way of talking about that. When eights find themselves in a situation where everything that they're trying to influence isn't isn't falling in line. Right? So they're always trying to influence whoever they're with 
and wherever they are. And in part, they're doing that because they're trying so hard not to be influenced by whoever they're with mm-hmm. and wherever they are. So um, eights recognizing that that isn't working do one of two things. They either do what you just talked about, TJ, and they take their marbles and go home. Mm-hmm. Or they say, you know, I think I need a break. I'd like to have some time to think about what's happening, and we'll gather again tomorrow afternoon at 4. And that sets the stage for what happens when they withdraw. Sometimes eights on the high side of 5 just need to be alone. They need to stop interacting. They need to think things through. They need to cool down. They need to recognize that there's another voice in the room that is not going to shut up. So they're going to have to manage that, or maybe two voices, or maybe three. And so when they withdraw, they generally, on the high side of five, get some sleep, uh, get a new perspective, and some creativity to reapproach that group with a new plan. If they take their marbles and go home, and they don't do any of that work, they come back the next day more unhealthy, not less unhealthy. Mm-hmm and more sarcastic and cynical, which you get from the low side of five, and they are ineffective. I have a theory I want to pitch you on exactly that front. It seems to me that each of the types in their stress number can pull from the virtue of that stress number. That there's something about the virtue that's normally, uh, uh, that each of the types embody the way they reflect God in the way that I see it. And fives embody the wisdom of God. And this is something that eights need in stress. They need to withdraw in order to to engage the wisdom that is a resource for them at five, especially in their fixation. Eights who are going to struggle with vengeance need to withdraw and hear the voice of wisdom in that space. And I was hoping that you could speak to that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to speak to it, but, you know, uh, s- some people uh, talk about the voice of wisdom in that space, but some Enneagram teachers talk about innocence. Yeah, sure. Right? And so I, I think the virtue that eights lose early in life, that they struggle the rest of their lives to get back is innocence. Mm. And they'll tell you the story of when they lost it. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's well... Uh, my first marriage was not healthy, and um, I worked a lot for us to all be okay, and I needed Joey's help early. She mm-hmm. was young, and I didn't have room for her to have the innocence that she was due as a child. And eights also tell me that they... Many eights have told me this, that they look at people and they see that if you're a take charge kind of person, then you, you don't have to give in and follow. And if, if you're weak and you don't take charge, then you're expected to follow. Hmm. And, you know, the truth about eights is they don't want to be in charge of you. That's not what they're looking for. They don't want you to be in charge of them. And I think in the bottom of five and in the bottom of eight, they want to be in charge of you. And they are as far from their innocence as they can get. And on the high side of five, I think they find wisdom and innocence. 
Mm-hmm. And the innocence element to the wisdom sets the table for them to not have to have the only word and for them to not have to be right. Hmm. What do you think there, TJ? Uh, I, I love that. That's, um, is, is innocence then paired with, with five or is that pairing the innocence of eight with the wisdom of five? It's one of the virtues that are offered as the virtue for eights. Okay. So finding through the high side of five, finding the virue of eight that you need. Right. Yeah. Right. That's. See, you would never, without wisdom, without the wisdom and detachment of a five, an eight would never risk innocence Hmm. with other people. Life has taught them not to do that. Well, so since life taught them that they would be betrayed if they did that, then the great quest for us is, well, how are you going to unteach that? Because we're betrayed every day, right? So how are you going to unteach that? Well, you unteach it by showing them the path where it's safe to show some innocence and it pays off and you didn't get betrayed. Mm. Yeah. Help them see examples in their own life. Yeah. Brings us to the nines. Uh, Describing the nines move to the low side of six, Suzanne, you write, nines become overcommitted, worried, rigid, wary of others, and anxious, even though they don't know why. These nines become more self-doubting, which makes decision-making even more difficult than usual. Interestingly, they also become reactive. There again, the move, uh, stance-wise. Breadcrumbs. You followed those breadcrumbs right through the door. A big departure for a number that is rarely ever quick to react. Um, TJ's a nine. You're married to a nine. Um, T- no, TJ, uh, I'm, I'm married sorry. To the She's nine. married to a nine. Right. Yep. Not TJ, and nope. I'm not married to TJ. Nope. <laughs> TJ, what do you hear in that description? Um, I mean, reading my mail, the uh, I am struck by like this. This actually helped exploring this this idea of nines moving to six and stress, this helped me understand why I personally start to fall apart so much when I'm in stress and start to become more reactive. Um, I'm, I'm normally a, like, let's just, let's just see what happens kind of person. Like, everything, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's, it's all going to work out. Don't worry about it. And then when I get really stressed out, I start to develop that... Um, like everything is going to break kind of mentality. And so, so like seeing that play out in, in the unhealthiness reflected there in the six, I see that in my own unhealthy move from in the stress places. What do you see, Suzanne, on the, the high side for nines to engage when they're in stress? Um, well, you know, there are times when it's appropriate to be worried. And, you know, being married to somebody who doesn't want to be worried at appropriate times is not comforting, Mm. right? So there are times when I know that Joe's in it with me and we have a concern and he says everything is going to be all right, that that feels kind of like I I trust that. Mm. I don't see it, but I trust it. But when you refuse to be worried and you lead with everything's going to be all right, 
I, I don't have any space for that. Mm. Right? And so the high, the high side of six allows you to have enough energy to be affected by what's happening. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, you go to the default place of just deciding not to be affected. And we'll just wait and see how it plays out. Right? right? And it doesn't always play out well. Right. Sort of like doubling down on the unhealth. That's right. And then the other thing is that most nines, not 100%, but a high percentage, when they are even on the low side of six, they're not verbal about it. Mm -hmm. So you get a mixed message. Their hair's falling out, but they're telling you that everything's going to (laughs) be fine. Right? And it's like, really? Uh, Doesn't seem like you really believe that. (laughs) And so it's... um, the, the, the high side of six acknowledges the challenge and names anxiety, which if it is not named, will truly be fear. Hmm. And it uh, sets the table for a virtue for nines, which is right action. Mm-hmm. There's something about, again, the move toward the virtue of sixes, um, the, they, the sixes who embody the fidelity of God is something accessible to nines. And it seems to me that nines who might struggle with indolence can get really pulled out of that mm-hmm. for the sake of other people. Yep. That I see the other person who is struggling, and though I wish for the calm to rule, I'm going to move forward because I love this person in in that place of stress and motivated to action. Yes, and and you know anxiety and fear are um great motivators for action. Mm. Right? Like when you allow yourself as a 9 to feel the anxiety that is present, then it's like, well, I don't want to keep feeling this. So I'm going to do something. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to think about it for another two days. I'm going to do something, which is usually right action. Right. It's the thing that has to be done, has to be done by you. Maybe you won't do it again for a year or 10, but it has to happen now. And I, I don't, here, here's what I think in relationship to uh, who God is and who we are. I don't think nines know who they are as God's beloved, until after right action. Hmm. The first time that they stand up and risk everything and say what they think and allow themselves to be affected and, and say what has to be said. And then I think it connects them to a part of themselves that knows that their presence matters. Yeah. Right? And they know that they have value in standing out instead of standing beside that has to be experience. I think their so. body type. It has to come in through their intelligence there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll. I'm also, um, obviously I can't speak for all nines said like a true nine. The, um, <clears throat> but I'm, yeah, don't I, want any conflict here. I'm just trying to be helpful. Yeah, this is just me. <laughs> this may not be the same for everyone. Um, I am struck by how there's not really a middle ground for me in that sort of stress place, mm-hmm. it's uh, when that anxiety starts to become real for me, it's I either go to sleep to it, I either narcotize and become mm-hmm. more unhealthy, or I have to act. 
Like there is not an option to sit in it. There's not an right. option to sort of manage it or or work with it. It's either going to push me to go to sleep or it's going to push me into action. Thank God. Right. Yeah. Mm. And so you now that you've experienced it, you get to choose action. Mm-hmm. And you can be nice to yourself if it takes you a couple of days. But you still get to choose it. Right. You get to choose. And I'm okay if you decide to go to sleep, if you know that's what you're doing. Right. But I don't want you to just fall into that because that's what you did last time. And it's just easier. Yeah. 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 And, and is it? Is well, it easier? It is in you that know, moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because my thing is, to Joe, I've said it four million times, you are aware that avoiding conflict causes conflict, right? <laughs> yeah, intellectually. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm aware Just saying. of that. Well, you know, if you were married to me, I would make it experiential. And then you wouldn't. <laughs> I'd get you out of your head and say, oh, hello. <laughs> My wife is uh, six. And so oh. she, she wants to push in those places. But she's also got the six, like, worried about upsetting the balance and, and doing things wrong. So we have interesting not fights about stuff like that. So it's a good time. Moves us to the ones. Describing the ones, Suzanne, uh, you describe the low side move to four as the one inner critic begins working overtime and their need to perfect the world goes into overdrive. They become more resentful of others, having more fun, more sensitive to criticism and depressed in this space they long to be free of obligations and responsibilities, lose confidence, and feel unlovable. What do you hear there, Teach? Well, the uh, again, a withdrawing move. And um, also in my experience with ones, I'm struck by um, it is so clearly a self-focused withdrawing so often. Um, uh, ones who are so often focused on things outside of themselves so easily retreat into this space of only thinking about themselves in those kinds of stressful situations. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wait, we think let's go there. Cause I, that's what I experienced personally. And the thinking about yourself can be both a very unhealthy move and it can be a way that healthy people actually navigate stress. And I would love your thoughts on that, Suzanne. Well, um, maybe one of the top three characteristics of the bottom half or unhealthy side of four is self-indulgence. And gently, very gently, uh, Jeff, I want to say, I I think (laughs) there is a, I, I think there's a, a self-indulgence in ones and kind of in cleaning up after people mm. and setting a standard that's the standard they've set for themselves and then feeling like they get to set that standard for other people too. And, yep. and then there's a, a temptation towards self-indulgence when you go through the whole thing, some of what was in what you read, of I, I try harder than other people and I care more than other people do and I do more and they're going out and having a good time and I'm here doing the right thing, mm-hmm. right? 
And then on the, the low side of four, one could only say uh, that the, the chorus for your song as a one would be, and things aren't going to get better. Hmm. And, and that's so sad when on the high side of one, there's all kinds of creative solutions to what has you feeling so discouraged. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you miss all that creativity if you're going to self-indulge. You just miss all of it. And then, and then there's the double whammy if you're a one because your voices then take you on about what got you there to begin with and about being self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not yeah. careful, you dig a hole there that you cannot get out of. You can't get out. And that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just not helpful. But creativity, oh my, is that helpful because ones are so rigid and they're so oriented toward rules and the right way and the wrong way and no third way that creativity is the only thing that's going to save them. But they don't trust themselves to creativity because they're afraid they'll make a mistake and that things won't work out and then they'll get another whipping. Mm. Just to speak into that for a moment, the my experience, and I realize a lot, I, I feel like I'm I'm kind of an outlier with a lot of ones, and I don't know if that's the countertype side. I'm maybe I it's just I'm sorry for interrupting, but I don't want to lose this. Maybe yeah. it's just all the pain you've suffered. Um, I'll let TJ speak to that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's that's a good insight. Yeah. Yeah. If I were you, I would really think about whether or not you think you were an outlier in, as a one when you were twenty. Uh, I think that's I, actually. I think that's spot on. I, th- I see my oneness coming out all over the place with in twenty-year-old Jeff for sure. Yeah. Um, did I not also, get in a fight with my mother-in-law about the wedding candle uh, that was going to be there. <laughs> I also think that as as a professional philosopher you've spent an awful lot of time thinking about the importance of rules and what rules are important. And, and so like the idea of following the rules has a different meaning for you because you've spent your professional life learning what the rules are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I navigate the, the one conversation about rules very differently than a lot of ones, but that's because I have specialization there. Well, I would uh, also say that I, I, um, I don't think very many Enneagram books are going to be written with professional philosophers in mind. <laughs> in good news, um, I can identify a handful of ones who do write books and in their older age speak out of that. I spent a year and a half in Second Corinthians thinking it was the best thing ever for the sake of my community. And there is a one talking about his pastoral problems in bold, um, self-revealing ways that I deeply connected to. And I thought, this is, this is gold for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be that sort of thing. I find at four that... I bet you would have been a really go good pastor if you never preached. We're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or if you had an interpreter. 
But you know what? Susan, that's TJ's that, that's professional my job. job. That is man. literally my job on staff at our church. Is I am you, his interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this case in point, like every, you know, for those of you who have never been to a church, a church elder board meeting, I am the worst person in the world to lead that and to advocate for things that I care about. Now, some of those things might be right. Queer people matter to God, and and I'm going to fight you on this. Um, on, the, on the flip side, you know, there's all sorts of things that I need restraint on. Um, but TJ steps in, understands all the positions, says, here's what he's saying. And so helpful for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, I, uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying that that is a really important gift because the fact that you need a bridge doesn't negate in any way the value of what's on your side of the bridge. It's just that you think in a way that is uh, deeper than most people want to work. Yeah, we have, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the suffering that has been in those spaces has sure. been experienced now. And so now I'm on the other side. So our, our, our meetings are very, very different at this yeah. point in time. Yep. I've, chased, I've chased off all of my friends, but, <laughs> but can make new friends. <laughs> Hopefully. I'm, I'm, I'm holding out hope, Suzanne. So um, last word on ones. It strikes me that there is something about the ones centering on their identity and their stress number that has been deeply helpful for me. The virtue for a four is uh, the embodiment of equanimity, the balance that comes at four, that fours need to balance. And that's what I need, not about anybody else. I need to know that my sins aren't greater than others. I need to know that my six, my successes are as praiseworthy as others. Mm-hmm. And I can't see either of those. And so the, the, the balance and the, the judgment that comes in that place is worthy for me. And I was hoping you could speak to that. I, I think um, this is one of the moves on the Enneagram that's uh, representative of one of the biggest gifts of the Enneagram and that is seeking balance you know it's like really after you've done you know five years of Enneagram work you recognize that everything is just about seeking balance it's Mm -hmm. like that has what you need figure out how to go get it right Mm -hmm. and um I I think I I think equanimity for fours has to do with uh, being okay in the middle. Mm-hmm. And the other people on the Enneagram, the only other number that never gets to be in the middle and be okay is ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Why either good that? or it's bad. There is no middle. <laughs> and so, you know, who, who knows where the Enneagram came from? Who knows? But It's discovered. Yeah, well, people who think they know, I don't know. But, um, but whoever figured all this out one day has to have said, oh, look, these two numbers both need to be okay in the middle. And they're connected by this line. You know what I'm saying? It's like, mm-hmm. do, yep. do you think they knew it ahead of time or do you think they went, 
And then there's this. Because my whole experience of learning the anagram is, and then there's this. Mm-hmm. Right? My, I, I want to pitch a theory to you. This is side note, but Johann Sebastian Bach discovers music theory, but it had already, it was always there. It's part of the fabric of reality. Right. I, it seems to me the more that I get into Enneagram literature material and the discovery side of things, yep. when people say, oh, look at this, that's what's going on. It's yep. being discovered. Yep. Every culture in the world discovers music theory on their own. Yep. It doesn't come from Europe. And that's in in my experience, Enneagram works like that. And in my experience, uh, uh, Western countries would be inclined to say, "Look what I found." Yes. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moves us to the twos, um, which are the numbers that we appreciate the most, of course. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Describing <laughs> the twos move to the low side of eight, uh, Suzanne. You write, twos and stress become demanding. There's the stance. And controlling either directly or manipulatively. They blame others for what makes them unhappy and can be surprisingly aggressive, vengeful about past wrongs. Um, TJ, what do you what do you hear there? Well, I think of I think of this move like um, like if twos are mama bear, then the move to eight is the bear part. Um, <laughs> and like 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 twos <laughs> The like the, it it's such a, a It sounds like this, TJ. Let me help you. <laughs> Here's how it sounds. You do whatever you want, but don't hurt my husband and don't hurt my kids. Uh-huh. Yep. Keep it. That's yeah, there. That's okay, perfect. keep going. Yeah. Well it's it's the um the twos and, and this is an unfortunate stereotype, but like the idea of the sort of like the gentle nurturing picture of the two, but you still have someone who who will use their if if the help that needs to be offered is to protect someone else twos will still do that and when they move into stressful situations where that's where that's the thing that's needed all of a sudden their their help becomes much more aggressive like it, it's just it turns it up several notches and like we said, this can be healthy or really unhealthy, and it's easy to see the unhealth at the eight space. Yes, and much harder to see the unhealthy side of two space. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, I, I'm teaching Know Your Number, and I look all Jesus-y, and then I teach eights. Yeah. And, and the, the truth is that giving to get is not really a, a lovely characteristic. Right? Right? And um, I, I would say this. Um, I generally learned the right way to protect my husband and my children using what I had learned uh, from the high side of eight. Mm-hmm. I generally be- operate from the low side of eight when I'm trying to protect myself. Oh, sure. Just a bitch. <laughs> yeah. I'm mean, and I assume the worst in people, and I, I uh, am so aggressive because I'm afraid you're gonna give me away, and so I'm gonna give you away first. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. You, you're not gonna leave me. I'm gonna push you away. So let me. Let me. Yeah. So it, it, well, here's what I here's what I would say. 
I, I have learned to use the high side of, t- of eight in a healthy way to stand up for th- justice most of the time, most of the time, mm-hmm. to stand up for what's just and to protect my husband and my children mm-hmm. and my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. But I still try to protect myself from the low side of eight. Mm. So that's therapy work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that's work I'm doing in therapy. But I think that's typical for many twos. It's like we feel so uncomfortable in stress, believing that we could be right or that we have a place to stand. So we just act mean mm. to try to get that across. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's a, it, it's it's not a, it's just not a pretty thing. Uh, it isn't. And it's also not very effective. So I had a question for you on this on the high side. This is again about fixation. The fixation for twos is flattery. Right. It seems like you're getting strength from out there from somebody else. Yep. And the move to eight is somehow I am getting strength from a different reservoir. That's right. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Well, it's not just the move to eight. It's also the move to four. Mm-hmm. Fours are focused inward all the time. And eights draw from inside themselves everything they need to do life. And twos try to get everything from outside themselves. So the healthy, the, the, the two on a journey to be healthy in their number has to start making decisions from inside instead of outside. They have to start looking for wisdom inside instead of outside. And they have to start um, defining how they're going to be in the world from the inside instead of the outside. And if, if you... If you can't do that work as a two, then you are forever malleable and you will live forever with regret. And the regret mm. will be this, that because you didn't have good boundaries and because you couldn't say no without causing trouble and without being horrific, then what happens to you is that you end up not taking care of the people you love the most because you trust that they're going to be there for you and mm. you give what belongs to them to other people. Mm. That's good. It's a great regret. It's, I have the strong intuition, and this goes alongside our topic here, that our stress number and our security number often can be engaged at the same time or in similar places. I find in the same with wings that there is a balancing that's taking place with all five of these numbers. I have my type, but here's how I'm balancing all around because I can feel both stressed out and engage my four and immediately turn to seven. Much easier than going back to one for myself. And I don't know if you have the same. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. And I, 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 I think uh, someday we should do a podcast for people who have been studying the anagram for five years. Hmm. And we should explore that with questions. I bet we can make that happen. <laughs> because that's, that's the conversation that we should have there. Hmm. Right? Okay, why, why do you think that's the conversation we should have? Because until people have learned to do each one of those steps on its own, one at a time, they will try to shortcut to all five, and you can't get there that way. And it's not intuitive. Yeah, exactly. What you're describing is learned behavior. It's not intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you want to start the grad level uh, Enneagram podcast, just know we're on board. Okay, yeah, great. We're in. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any, any last words on twos? 
Uh, don't overvalue being nice. <laughs> Brings us to the threes, which are the most attractive number on the Enneagram. Describing uh, the move um, from threes to the low side of nine. Suzanne, you write the threes retreat. Again, there it is to the couch with the remote or lose themselves in unproductive busy work. Seemingly worn out, they lose their characteristic optimism and confidence and become self-doubtful. Lacking motivation, stress out threes might lose interest in working out, eating healthy food, and paying attention to appearance. What do you hear there, TJ? Um, the, the threes that I know are uh, have tremendous amount of energy and always have a way to, um, to pivot like they, it, there's, there's always something to be done to fix the situation. There's always something to be done to make whatever is happening in front of them a little bit better, a little bit more, a little bit more successful, a little bit more fun, whatever, whatever it needs to be. There's always something to do. And then when I see threes get really stressed out, that's the only time I ever see them give up. And that's like, that is that move to nine. And it, um, they go home it, it's another, another retreat, um, in, in, and in really bad places, I see it a lot like the, like, take my marbles and go home. I see it a little differently. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, what happens is they so overextend themselves that they uh, are not able to live up to their um, image of always being able to solve the problem. And the only way they know to maintain their image when they can't solve the next three problems that they're facing is to go home. Like it's all they know to do is to go to the couch. And I, I think from the couch on the high side, threes learn that they don't have to always have the solution. They don't have to always lead. They don't have to always do it the most efficient, the most effective way they can follow sometimes. They can allow for it to go somebody else's way, even without objection. And things still get from point A to point B to point C to point D. And, and I, I, um, I, I just think there's a lot to be learned from, if you're an aggressive number, from finding your place in things. Hmm. Instead of, assuming a place that you hold in most things. Hmm. Strikes me again that the fixation of vanity is there for the three and the move of withdrawing into a place. I envision solitude there that <laughs> I need to get out of the spotlight is a very healthy move for healthy threes to find genuine peace at nine. As long as it's not a default move, as long as it's a decision. Yeah, talk about that. Hmm. Well, you know, you can read, you can learn to know yourself well enough to know when you need to go home or know when you need to let somebody else lead or know when you're an okay person if you're just one of the people in the room, mm. right? And um, uh, Naranjo uh, preferred vanity over self, over deceit as the passion. For threes. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think there's, there's some wisdom in that. I just don't know very many threes 
who are not in their hearts trying to be whatever it is they think you want them to be. Mm-hmm. And don't you know that must be tiring? And if, if you go to the bottom of nine, you don't give a damn. It's like, I'm not what you want me to be, and I don't care. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the high side of nine, it's, I'm not all that you want me to be, but I bet I can be part of what you want me to be. Hmm. I miss this. I don't know if it's a clarification, but the, the sin for the three is, is deceit, and the fixation for the three is vanity. Right. Am I missing that? No, that's is correct. This? That's okay. correct. Yeah. But Naranjo wanted the passion to be vanity. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, thank you. That was a clarification I missed. Yeah, yeah. Um, any thoughts on that, TJ? I wonder, so almost every three that I've ever spoken to doesn't like deceit, doesn't like deceit being their, their passion uh, because they don't think they're liars. Um, and I wonder like, how much of that is informed by the, like, how much of Naranjo's position on vanity is informed by that kind of idea. Um, but well, I don't think I, I think he was holding to vanity, so I'm not sure that that is what happened. The only thing I would say about that is that I, I think deceit isn't taught well. Right, I agree. All right, well, this is a good place I think for us to pause. Uh, we'll pick up with fours next time. TJ, you got anything uh, you want to say before we sign off? Well, I mean, yeah, I, there's nothing that can be said that hasn't been said better by Suzanne. So no. Hey, faithful listener, it would mean the world to us if you took two seconds and write us a review or give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can always find us on Instagram at Around the Circle Podcast. And all of our links to all of our stuff is at aroundthecircle.org. But the best thing you can do is share this episode with somebody that you love. The music we use is by The Collection at Greensboro, North Carolina, and Tim Coons from right here in Greeley, Colorado. If you dig our pop culture deep dives, you can help us select upcoming series and hear more on our Patreon page. He's CJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. She's Suzanne, and she is a magnanimous titan of Enneagram wisdom. And I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are, and you'll set the world on fire. Burning, will come burning. Burning.